Greetings, rulers. This is a bit of a different episode. Um, it's actually comprised of a few conversations I had with some friends of mine um, who are really active in the uh, David Feldman Show uh, podcast community. Um, I kind of uh, went online and instigated some conversations on some things that I'm thinking about, and I was really pleased um, that there was a wide group of people that were interested in engaging and conversing on those topics. So uh, that's why this episode is going to sound quite different. There's a lot of different voices. Um, audio quality varies a little bit too, so just a heads up, but it should be should be pretty solid throughout. Um, you know, I want to thank everyone for participating, and I want to thank all of you for listening. Please do check us out at uh, patreon.com slash nightrule for more content. Yeah, without any further ado, enjoy this special roundtable episode. Okay. Um, okay, well, welcome, everybody, to an unofficial episode of uh, the Night Rule podcast. I'm actually going to be hitting on a lot of topics that have been touched on already tonight um, in this little soapbox rant. Um, kind of building on a, a little rant I went on last week where I was talking about what something something that a lot of people have touched on here, this, the commodification of kind of the necessities of everyday life, um, which I think is a really tricky and a really uh, multifaceted problem, um, but I also think one with um, tremendous potential to think of, in terms of thinking about areas where we could actually like see some material progress in people's lives. Um, I feel like couching a lot of discussion in... The, in a knowledge of uh, or a discussion of the necessities of life is, is kind of a good way to keep things grounded. And maybe that's why it's been on my mind personally a lot as I kind of go about my daily um, humdrum life. Um, now, what are my, my point that I made last week that I'll just try and really briefly resummarize is that um, the kind of systems we've created that deny people the necessities of life and deny the full flourishing of human potential are completely unintuitive, uh, as well as obviously shameful and barbaric. And um, we're losing things that are kind of unquantifiable in their true importance when we squander this great material uh, and environmental wealth that is really ultimately all around us. I mean, ultimately, in a lot of a lot of ways, I don't know if I've been listening to too much Jennifer Verdelin or not, but I feel like I come I keep on coming back to the animal kingdom, you know, if if uh, if we're if animals could talk and they could see some of the systems we created to deny things to people such as like drinkable water, you know they would they would be very happy to stay in the animal kingdom. I'm very very sure. Just in terms of expanding the argument, I mean, or expanding the discussion, I mean, like what are the necessities of life, right? I mean, there's the very simple kind of grade school definition of food, shelter, and water, or or food, uh, clothing, and shelter. And we can look at things like you know tainted food, mislabeled food food procured by means of some kind of cruelty or even food denied to hungry people due to some kind of embargo or whatnot um, or food just wasted. Um, individuals not having a kind of uh, a literacy, an understanding of how to, how to cook or, or have, a, have a relationship with food and a food culture that promotes illness. Um, these are all, I would argue, symptoms of the same problem, which is the commodification of a basic need which is food and nutrition and sustenance. Um, clothing, I mean, the, the examples in the textile industry are so cartoonish, they like barely even require any mention. We have factory workers, you know, working in buildings collapsing upon, down, down upon them because it's cheapest to produce textiles in X, X location or Y location. Um, and 
shelter. I mean, shelter. I think ultimately you're you're dealing with a, a concept a little more esoteric than just basic shelter, which is a home. And I'm gonna try and like delve into that a little bit more later. Um, but if we move beyond that primary definition, you know, we can say food. Okay, water. I think needs to be included in its own category, especially now when you look at obviously uh, like indigenous communities in Canada, uh, and communities of color in Detroit and places like that all over the all over the world. People are being denied not only in the first world or not only in the third world as before, but now also in the first world, basic potable water. And again, like you think some you know like bunny rabbit would understand if we tried to explain to them that we just found it less efficient to give people water that wouldn't poison them. And we, we developed this great civilization where people don't have fucking water to drink. Like, like animals would laugh at us and look down on us. Like that's the level of the absurdity and the, un, un, and the unintuitive nature of this system that we've created. And again, I see Tim from Canada agrees. Thank you, Tim. So, um, you know, we have, we have the home, we have sleep. I think sleep is a really interesting one when you think about how our time is structured and how under a capitalist system, time is such a valuable resource that it's constantly being pilfered by people such as your employer or whatever else um, and denying you perhaps a good night's sleep because you've been at your computer for, uh, for about, you know, 16 hours straight and, uh, and you've been bathed in the blue light the whole time. So you can't even sleep when you want to try. Um, but you know, I think I think it's really also important to move beyond needs that are that are a simple that, that that you could define even as material commodities. I mean, social bonds and and the different types of social bonds and engagement, the different types of love one might have in one's life, that ties into things like a home. That ties into things like a community. How do you quantify or express the full value of a home or a community to a human being? You can't quantify that. You can't ascribe that a value it's it's invaluable um and it's something that requires a lot of that, that that engenders a lot of complexity and requires probably a lot of different elements to really work that well um and i think we need to start thinking about that in uh, in a more complex complex way um people say that human beings need novelty and i think that ties into a lot of different aspects of one's life um definitely the work they do but also the the culture they consume and the world they live in. And I think it's fair to say that we we see a lot of monoculture out there. We see a lot of sameness. Uh, we see a lot of kind of top-down dissemination of ideas and, and culture. And uh, and really, you know, I think ultimately my personal opinion is, as long as I'm on the soapbox, that that's totally anathema to the truest form of, like, human life. Um, people need challenge. They need to be... They need to exert some kind of effort on the world or their surroundings or those around them. And they need to get some kind of feedback back in the form of some result of that effort and that work. We need to overcome challenges. Like, to be honest, I moved my computer just prior to this and I fucked up my audio capture setup. And even just refiguring it out and getting over that challenge was actually like, even though I was really mad at the moment it happened, it gave me a it gave me a little boost of energy and a little bit of more confidence to come on go on this soapbox rant right now, for example. So in a way, I'm kind of grateful I had that challenge. And then now I'm going to get to stuff that's totally intuitive, and you'd think that I would have gone to before. You know, things like education and healthcare. I mean, um, it's it's remarkable that we would ever think that a society that denied people young minds education or minds of any age education. 
and people of all types, just the the most common sense, the most decent uh, access to healthcare we could possibly give them because it's it's efficient to have, you know, a society where people are alive and where their minds are actually, you know, capable of doing real work. Um, so in a way, I don't even consider those necessities of life so much as necessities of life as well as necessities of just a functioning, vibrant, healthy, you know, society and civilization worth living in, which I hope we can someday find ourselves um, within. Um, you know, I think I think at this point I'm, I'm getting into stuff that's maybe pretty esoteric, but I think is also really meaningful to me personally. You know, things like, you know, you want there's a sense of justice that every human being has. There's a sense of fairness that is implied in the the. I think it's just a self-evident truth that human beings have an inkling towards fairness and really bristle when they see a world that is not governed by some kind of fairness. It's, it's so intuitive that I think it's beyond even just like animals or plants or anything else. I think, I think fairness itself is just like a generic baseline material element of the universe. Um, and I think, you know, we could talk about the GameStop story a little bit when discussing things like justice and fairness. Um, you know, people need to live a life of dignity. They need to feel a life where that's uh, where they themselves are dignified. The people they love and the people around them uh, exist in a world that, that gives them dignity and that dignity isn't infringed upon. And this is one of those things where, I mean, it's esoteric, but say you had all the needs I talked about up above this one, but someone denied you dignity or you didn't feel like you had dignity it really wouldn't the, re- the rest of it's not going to mean much like all of these things are trump cards in my mind that will in a way if you pull away if you, the, the, the whole house of cards will fall almost I mean, house of cards is a bad metaphor but the, the whole structure is going to fall because each one of these things is its own kind of keystone and its own linchpin um and then you know representativeness uh, i think is another another really big deal i mean not not of some kind of empty performative uh, or performance based representativeness but some kind of true actual representativeness is something that is a necessity of, certainly of social life and we're talking you know we talk about life on the individual level but i think it also exists on a social level um, and then the last the last thing i'm i'm going to add to the list um is maybe the most esoteric of all because it's it's kind of a, a negation of something. But I think I think people have a very strong need, and it, it maybe is too is so obvious it doesn't need to be stated. But they have a very strong need to not be killed by war, and I think we underestimate the potential for war to really disrupt our entire civilization globally and uh, and have effects even in even in really affluent and peaceful societies such as Canada, the United States. Um, now. The thing about I the thing I think about all of these needs is they they actually can be denied for periods of time, uh, and I think human beings can actually bear it. You know, we can go without food for a little while. We can go without um, you know a steady home maybe for a little while. We can go without novelty for a little while, or a sense of you know seeing fairness represented around us for a little while. But I think asking people to bear it for too long is where you really start to see the structure of society fray and tear at the edges. And I think we're certainly in a moment right now where a lot of people have been pushed to the edge in terms of waiting for the world to recognize the basic fact that they that they have basic needs as human beings. And we haven't structured society in such a way that those basic needs 
are met intuitively. Um, and then expanding out from that as just like a metaphor that I, I found or that I think might be useful in thinking about um, if you know how we focus on these problems. Um, you know, I, I I'm, I'm really I, I don't want to sound like some kind of incrementalist or reformer because I'm, I'm certainly far far from that. And I think you know, drastic systemic change is always is always something you should be considered, especially when you're talking about really big problems. But in in the realm of participatory, democratic, nonviolent action, you know, I think we have to, I think we really have to embrace um, problem solving and, and, and refine, refinement of, of problem solving and, and structuring our thinking so that we say, okay, well, we have a problem. Here's our solution to the problem. Here are some remaining issues after that solution, and then we're going to try and continue to refine. And I don't know if this is from years of working in software development or whatnot, but um, the metaphor I want to use is the Gregorian calendar. So, um, little history lesson: uh, you know, we the people used lunar calendars um, for centuries, and, and, and lunar and solar calendars are still used by very significant populations of the world, and. This, this rant is in no way meant as a statement to like uh, say a certain type of calendar is better than any other. And I, in fact, I think the, the diversity and the acceptance of the, the diversity of solutions to a problem are really important. But, you know, people had lunar calendars for a long time. Um, they had issues in that the, 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 the seasons would drift and, and the calendar would stop matching kind of the actual weather seasons. So... You know, at a certain point in history, Julius Caesar, continuing a great tradition, um, consulted uh, someone from the Orient, took their idea and then put his own name on it. So he consulted actually this uh, famous um, astronomer by the name of, what was his name here? Uh, Sosigens or Sosigens of Alexandria. Um, and he's credited with, with consulting uh, Caesar on the development of the Julian calendar which, um, as well as, uh, on, among other things, studying the orbit of Mercury. So he's a pretty learned guy. Um, and obviously that gave us, in many ways, the calendar we use today where we have three, three regular years and then one leap year. Now, the problem was after you know, a few thousand years of that, they realized, oh, well, that actually doesn't completely solve the problem mathematically. So what we need to do is we need to say every third year is a leap year, except when the year is divisible uh is except for the years that are exactly divisible by a hundred okay so those can't be leap years but then the years that are divisible by a hundred will be leap years if they're also exactly divisible by 400 so what that did was it basically corrected the julian calendar and made it into the calendar that's widely used worldwide today now of course we live in a in a multicultural multi-ethnic society so we celebrate uh, lunar new year in the chinese calendar for example and there's all all kinds of other calendars that are in use but i want us to be able to look at all these problems of how do we address the necessities of life that are being denied to people and say okay well what's what's the, what's the problem writ large okay let's try and solve that however are there minor refinements required after that? And what is the complexity required to imagine those refinements? I mean, when you look at something like commodities trading um, or people commodifying things like food and water, I mean, these these are all things that should be, there should be a process we come together with so we, that 
There should be a process by which people come together socially to define that these are special instances where the market cannot be trusted to run things, cannot be trusted to provide for the greater public good. And it ties into a lot of what people have been talking about tonight in terms of um, the public interest and and things that need to be like just just recognizing that quite simply there's times where the marketplace and capitalism are are not going to provide what is needed for a certain situation um and in fact is actually going to be hurting us long term because it's it's framing these discussions with short-term thinking and, and thinking in terms of short-term and quantifiable gain while we squander all kinds of potential and all kinds of opportunity and the imagination uh, and intellect of billions. Um, does anyone have a yes and or a, a, a further discussion? You make it sound so easy, Isaac. What's the secret sauce? How do we do it? I mean, I think, you know, we really need to abandon a lot of our argumentation in favor of of talking about what people, what's going to make the most difference in people's lives, what's going to make the most difference for people that need the help the most and i think by getting people who need the help the most that help and by doing other things like you know address you know like the water crisis in flint for example like i really think that kind of thing will really empower people and educate people to to take on uh, broader and greater struggles and i think worker cooperatives are super important as well you know i think i think anything that destabilizes the the class divisions in the workplace um, that uh, creates an environment where people are empowered at work rather than work being something they have to bear and and find ways to cope with. Um, There's so many multifaceted, uh, it's such a multifaceted um, problem that the solutions are also multifaceted. Multifarious is that the word I'm looking for? Multitude, like. I think you're. I think you're right there, Isaac. I think it's. There's a one word that comes to mind, which is fetish in the Marxist sense of like fetishizing things, and then you're talking about material, material things. I think breaking that, the breaking fetishism, breaking the abstraction between what we do and what we consume, and making it into an abstraction. That's the that's the stranglehold we have to break. That's like psychosis that we're all consumed with. Well, maybe we can take that abstraction. Maybe we can destroy that abstraction by grounding it in a material reality. Somehow, I mean, really, like this. This is all basic social democracy. Yeah, like, I don't. No, I don't. I, mean, I don't. I, I, think I don't think I, it's going to be I, a very hard argument right. to make for a lot of people. You know, like, look, motherfuckers need to be educated. They need healthcare. They need food. Children need to be protected and, and grow up in an environment where they're fostered. But we have to somehow the, the safe. to work through our politics. Like our politics is so fucked up that the fakest person can be the realest person, right? Like that's what happened with Trump. Like he just came out and like said fake, 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 and he just called everything bullshit. And like that got people riled up. They said, "Yeah, I feel that everything is bullshit. This is all fake." Like we we. It, it, fake news you know it got very like oriented towards media which is valid but like the whole concept of like everything's fake everything's bullshit 
we're, and we see it with what just happened with GameStop. We all know it. We all know it's fucking bullshit, but we keep participating in it. And that's what's called fetish, right? Like it's sure. a fucking weird, it's a weird concept. Like it's really, you have well, to it's, have, a, it's, it's, it's like a de-evolution. I'd call it like a de-evolution, like in the sense of like, we're, the, the tyranny of low expectations of, of capitalism is, is turning us all into form, like a form of infant in one way or another, or an isolated, isolated atomized person or someone that only sees the world through the commodities they procure. You know, or they can right. only they can right. only express their desire for a social bond through a commodity. You know. Um, well, I think it's I right. think it's going to have to be uh, again to Dan's point. Uh, it's going to have to be a political. It's going to have to be a political movement of some kind uh, to wake people up. It's. I mean, that's the only. That's yeah, the only I think thing. I think what we all yearn for, and what we all look for is like someone that we look at and say like. This guy is telling me the truth. That's what we liked about Bernie Sanders. Like, I went to a couple of Bernie Sanders oh. rallies. Well, the truth brings had, people together, yeah. And 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 the thing that was funny about Bernie Bernie Sanders rally is, I mean, he speak he just spoke in these one-liners, but like he gets up and he just says like, "I'm against the establishment," and that includes the Democratic establishment. And the people went fucking crazy. You know, everybody cheers at that line about, like, we're just going, like, it's just we're going against entrenched power. I think the entrenched power is on the way down, but they still have the reins of power and they can, like, control things like they can be Robin named Robinhood.com. But yet, when the little guys are just kind of causing a little bit too much trouble, they could say, we're selling your fucking shares for you. You made some money. Get out of our way. Like that they're was all just, yep. yeah. That was absolutely astounding. Um, I don't have, I can't raise my hand. This is Marianne. Um, no, hi, Marianne. Yeah. I just returning returning a- guest on Night Rule. By the ah. way, everyone, as I call for an end of capitalism and the end of our our atomized, you know, dystopic uh, efforts to self brand and make ourselves a business, please do visit us at Patreon.com/slash/NightRule to become a patron yes, and do. show that you really care about destroying capitalism by giving us money but, but we'll, we'll, we'll be running it democratically go ahead no no I, isaac just said something very uh very important that we actually do have a wealth of technology and ability to do to do things and that may not always be the case and you know when we're talking about bernie sanders one of the things that getting involved with bernie sanders did was get a lot of us out of our comfort zones so you know this fetishism this kind of like acquiescence to the way things are and there's nothing we can do about them well you know you sort of had to step out of that if you were really active on bernie sanders campaign to the extent that many of us ran for public office so absolutely um, absolutely but we don't i mean have yeah. all the time in the world is what i'm saying we don't have all the time and i'm not just talking about individually we have a good life right now, relatively speaking. We have tools. People just, you know, it's just going to make us uncomfortable to use them. And I think particularly when we have power and we have tools, the resistance against doing anything just builds up. I don't know what that is, but, you know. Well, I think we should pick up where Occupy Wall Street left off. I mean, I don't know if anybody else here was there. Yeah. I think David was um, involved. Uh, I was in Occupy LA's uh, media team. 
and also was the one of the primary organizers of Occupy the Rose Parade, which was one of the most successful of all the Occupy uh, actions. I'm not bragging; it's just that's reality. Um, getting the message of, you know, we had three messages that we got out to the world basically on that: ending foreclosures, uh, corporate personhood, and getting the money out of politics. Um, and I think we need a movement like that because if that movement was happening right now, you know, there would be everybody would be there. Black Lives Matter, Me Too, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Conservatives, uh, uh, Communist Socialists, uh, Teachers Unions, um, everybody would be there, the entertainment industry, because that's what was happening at Occupy, was that everybody was there, even people that you wouldn't necessarily agree with in many ways, but everybody was on board with the fact that the 1% was getting 40% of the wealth at that time. Now it's worse. Um, if something like that has to happen in order to get people off their butts, literally, and in action, because if it doesn't, I mean, it's it just it, we're going to see more things like the Capitol, uh, the storming it's of the very, Capitol. It's so it's it's so interesting because the, what you're conf what we all what we're confronting is like our static environment that we are all just kind of like it's that's I mean hundred people or whoever's here and we're having our theoretical discussion but what really matters is like the mass of the people and the mass of the people mostly just want to survive and they're mostly they're keying into their own groups that reinforce their own narratives there has to there, I don't know what the breakthrough point is like the the Robin Hood takeover of the stock market wasn't it uh force the vote isn't it i don't know what it is but it's something i i i kind of um my my drawdown position is as the uber mensch leader who comes along and says the right thing but we just saw what that was um it's very difficult difficult to think about how to break through a, like an alienated culture where everybody is we're connect we have a perception of being connected because of the internet we have a we a perception of our connectivity and our ability to organize because of the internet but it, the translation to the real world isn't showing itself from that so i don't know where the breakthrough point is it's something i don't want to get into acceleration of ideology or whatever but something there has to be a breakthrough point um nate did you have a question or a comment as well um yeah this this whole topic of uh i forget now you're calling it but just kind of commod self commodification or commodification of just all the basic things we can do for each other i really like uh, i i i'm um you know, some examples I think of it just are things like right in front of you, but like just things like all my friends that that pay money to go take yoga classes when, you know, could we just rent a building together and just go do yoga? Um, at the yeah. same time, though, you know, with that kind of thing, I'm like, well, you know, I've worked a lot of crappy ass jobs. And if I could make money doing yoga or teaching yoga, <laughs> you know, I even think about like luxury spending, right? Like say a yacht make, uh, someone that builds yachts or 
or handmade canoes, you know, you know, it's like, well, God, isn't it great that they're able to do that instead of some crappy job? But I'm not saying this as in opposition to, you know, to your idea. It's just more like a complication to me, you know, as long as we are in a, in a market situation. Um, but I also really like the call for the concrete. Like one question I would love to, to, you know, be put to someone again, I bring up the, I'm sorry, I forget his name, the Amazon worker who was here on Monday. Christian uh, Smalls. Christian Smalls, thank you. Um, you know, is what is it? And I mean, and I think, um, I think this was somewhat asked of him, but like, you know, what is it that would make your you and your co-workers life different like what would make your life better today and um and this was a I, I bring that up because well anyway i just heard an organizer talking about that's how she kind of starts when she's talking to people um that she's helping organize nurses and stuff um and then oh there was one other kind of I think that's I a that's a great way to frame it. I think that's probably really effective because you're you're telling someone you care about their needs. You realize they have a com complex existence and their needs might be different on different days, and you're mm -hmm. putting it to them in a way that's simple enough for for a child to answer or understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was it, it was such an obvious idea, and I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Um, the one other thing I just wanted to reflect on is the the I guess, I guess, you know, it's what's called mutual aid or, or, you know, maybe in a, in a poor, you know, a financially poor community or, or just in any community, you know, before this current era of commodifying every last corner of our lives, you know, just like sharing the childcare, the drive, the kids to school, all that stuff, you know, some of which happens, but more and more it, it, it's a commodification anyway i mean I, I i hope we don't have a great depression but i think if we did there'd be a lot more of that mutual aid that would just happen out of necessity um but uh anyway yeah i'm, I'm glad this is coming up um and uh and you know and again the call for the concrete right i i think these discussions, I do like kind of the bird's eye view, high-minded discussions, but I also think we can use this group to get more concrete. I think it's there's enough energy here for that, and I'm I'm playing, I'm still playing my video games, but I'm playing less of them, and I, I think I'm about to to get <laughs> more concrete. I'll pass. Absolutely, love it. Thank you, thank you so love much, it. Nate. That's great, Nate in Wisconsin. Um, Mike, did you want to throw in a comment before we wrap up the segment? I'd love to. I learned about this concept um, just like yesterday or two days ago, and it's called Cosmolocalism. And um, what made me think of it was like several lines of thought here with technological availability, uh, connectedness via the Internet, and like, a, you know, a move towards communal or more communal kind of, you know, not necessarily inevitability inevitability but you know you know just moving towards that um anyway cosmolocalism involves kind of like uh open source knowledge uh you know distributable by a network so the internet 
Um, and uh, a com common thing, I guess, uh, to think about would be like designs uh, that people anywhere in the world can just download to their 3D printers and um, create, the, uh, well, the, you know, the means of production or the uh, actual machinery to make stuff would be local. Um, but like all the information is the Cosmo. And so you have the light and then the heavy on the ground. Um, and you see kind of small scale things like in these makers uh, areas uh, that have been popping up and stuff um, past decade or so. And so I just thought that uh, kind of tied some things together uh, that we've been talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. That's great. Cos what was it? Cosmo localism? Cosmo? Cosmo localism. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'll have to look that up. Um, Tim, I'm going to give you one more chance. You, did you have something you wanted to say? I did have a thought. Uh, you know, there's some talk of, you know, yoga and how people can just practice yoga in a building. They don't need to pay to do it. Um, but I think that ignores the fact that uh, these sorts of things, you know, you can't just pull something like yoga out of the ether. You need a, a teacher, right? I mean, there has to be sure. some... Yeah, I mean, there has to be someone, some instructor, probably a yogi or a yogini, as they are called, I believe. Or anything like that. Um, I nominate Tim know, from Canada to be of, yogi you know, for our for our socialist studio. Who spends their life mastering a skill and helping to instruct others in that uh, discipline, whatever it might be? All the stuff that we like to talk about often comes back to the same sort of structures that we uh, think that we're opposed to. I remember in the early 90s, a lot of my friends were into this so-called let's system uh, of monetary exchange. Like, we're going to get rid of money, we're going to have let. Well, the more that thing played itself out, the more it started to take on all the exact characteristics of what we call money. It wasn't any different. I think that's actually really important. Really Those are really important points. Yeah. Yeah. We need to be careful when we're making our own alternative structures that we look at things like, okay, well, is this actually just going to result in some of the same stuff we're trying to oppose? I mean, I can't remember who, what, what thinker was on what show that I was watching recently, but they were talking about how, you know, if, if a socialist workers cooperative takes over a business, but they keep all the jobs the same, ultimately you're going to, the end result will be the same kind of class relationship between management and the worker, right? So. Well, these I, I, things exist for a reason. And uh, I think if we look at the example of the Soviet Union, you know, <laughs> you can't ignore it. You know, the, that's something we have to recognize. That is a, it, how do we organize ourselves in such a way that we can achieve what we need? What do we need to do? What is the problem that we need to solve? Is it that we have income inequality? Well, yeah, that's a big one. What else? What are the real problems? We, we need to change our human behavior such that we don't kill ourselves uh, Climate change is a major problem. Thanks for not muting me. Bye. Okay, cool. Well, I'll just I'll wrap things up here. Um, I can't say exactly why, although uh, other than I think it's a little apropos to what I'm talking about. Um, I'm going to be ending with a reading of a poem by the uh, 15th century Indian poet Kabir, um, someone who existed uh, in a interesting space, uh, certainly full of cultural interchange. Okay, and this is it reads as such. Have you heard the music that no fingers enter into? Far inside the house, entangled music. What is the sense of leaving your house? Suppose you scrub 
your ethical skin until it shines. But inside, there is no music. Then what? Muhammad's son pours over words and points out this and that. But if his chest is not soaked dark with love, then what? The yogi comes along in his famous orange, but if inside he is colorless, then what? Thank you uh, so much, everybody, and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you uh, more very soon. Great job, Isaac. Thanks, Isaac. Thank you. Thanks, Isaac. Sweet. Yeah, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? I didn't. I didn't mean it as a bad kind of compliment. I think, that way. I think you're right, for, man. For me, for no, but I'm talking. I'm just thinking about work, right? So, okay. Like I remember recently on a hockey on a on a hockey podcast, um, and like the nature of work and like work that's empowering versus work that's disempowering, and like I uh, recently on the hockey podcast, I was uh, talking with a friend of mine about. Um, like a writing project and just finding the energy and the gumption and the gusto to um, continue to chip away at it. And, uh, and first of all, he told me one thing that motivates him is he wants, uh, he wants his kids to have something when he dies that's like left over. And then not that it's going to be good or like not, not that the stories or the poems or whatever are going to be good. It's just, there's going to be a lot of them and they'll be like, Jesus Christ, like look at all this stuff dad left behind. Like there's so much of it. Um, but one thing he also told me that on a much more serious note was just how much he just enjoyed doing it and, and in being in the act of sitting there and doing the writing. And that itself was what made it so made it so worthwhile for him. And it's, it's been on my mind in terms of like the human mind having a challenge, having novelty, having uh, exerting itself on the world and on nature and, and on society. Um, and we're just looking at work that is, you know, the, just 
let's just say like for lack of a better term, pure and, and empowering and is something that you you're choosing to do based on your own free will and your interests and your passions in life and what you, what you're good at, what you're not good at, just like your own choice as opposed to selling your time for a salary. Um, and I'm trying to rediscover that because I've really gotten very, very complacent in my thirties and gotten very lazy and I've become a TV baby a little bit again. So I'll just binge on TV and, Thankfully, I don't really play video games anymore, but um, for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm learning again the value of working on something you care about, something that you create in your mind first and then try and put out there in the world in some material form. And then that struggle where, you know, you uh, you begin to hate it, you want to walk away from it, you know, it takes on a life of its own. You know, you're like, am I just, when am I ever going to finish this? And I'm really bad at finishing stuff. And that's why I had to ask my friend Brad about like why, like how to push through and how to stick with it when I've kind of become this infantilized individual lacking an ability to, to really just like stick to that kind of work. And, and maybe it's just a time thing. Maybe it's just focus being diverted, but I don't know. I feel, I feel like that's such a, it's such a powerful thing. That's such a, uh, a incredibly powerful element of anyone's day-to-day life, like literally day-to-day, hour-to-hour. And we don't really talk about it or think about it that much. And I'm I'm just curious, uh, Dave and PA, as, as you're standing there in your workshop, literally, um, like if you have if you have any more advice or thoughts you can kind of give, give me on that or expound on that for this uh, surreptitious night rule. <laughs> Uh, well, um, just as far as background, I've been, apart from a couple of semesters, three semesters of college, I've been making things for my living for the last 30, well, since 83, summer of 83. So, you know, 37 years or whatever. Um, and I've always been, for the most part, in small private enterprises, petite bourgeois, five man shop, sole owner, you know, sole proprietor type of guy with some employees. Like, like that's where I started. We're just small carpentry crews. Everybody shows up with their belt and their truck, right? Um, so I, I, I can't say that I've, I have a direct comparison in the alienation department from that standpoint. So I'm speaking, I say that to say that I'm speaking from a point of view that I, I've never like worked in an office or almost never in a place where I had to punch in or that workers were anonymous. You know, the scale was always pretty personal mm. and a good chunk, you know, half of my, professional life half my adult life is probably being alone at it you know just being a a gig independent carpenter cabinet maker um but yeah i would say uh some things that stood out from what you said is what i you know i think about things that i make will be found um uh, things that you don't see after i put it in will be found one day there's a cavity in a staircase i'll i'll buy the newspaper that day and throw it in that cavity because i found stuff that was obviously not accidentally left there 
some guy was putting up a <laughs> yeah. wall and he knew and he, here i got a can of beer and i was just reading the paper i'll leave well, it in the wall i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of laughing cuz a friend of mine recently like tore a wall down in his uh, condo and someone had just drawn like the biggest like dick pic with like a magic marker that was behind this wall so there i hope go, i'm man. sure you're doing stuff the time capsule stuff is more interesting than that i mean yeah, and you're you're leaving an imprint on the material world. Like your reality has now become like synthesized with your spirit, and you've you've left an impression. Yes. You've grounded it in a material like object, which is it sounds really interesting. Like it sounds, I really wonder what that kind sounds of, so cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> I wonder what kind of like work like work culture we would have if if it was things like small groups slash a lot of time working alone, but with a non anonymous workforce and without punching of a clock. And, and all that, you know, because I'm sure there's a lot of yeah. like the whole the whole question of like management and self-management and collaboration is probably probably comes about a lot more organically. Right. Just project to project. Yeah, it depends who's who's heading it up. And then there's you know, you have your different relationships. You know, most of my work is is back east in Jersey, Connecticut, you know, and uh, but around here, there's one contractor that picks me up for staircases because he doesn't want to think about them. They're nothing, you know, they're not at the top of the line or anything. But if around here, they're pretty nice, you know. Uh, a retired professional, you know, moving out here is going to have, you know, a $200,000 house is a nice retirement house around here because you can get a pretty good house for that. Um, anyway, so I know how he works. I know where his quality level's at. I know what the culture of his jobs are like. Um, that's, I was going to say, in terms of collaboration, independence dancing uh a large job a house say uh i've been on a few well many but some are more intimate with um where it's a you know a two-year-long project you got several crews of high-end artisans we know each other from crossing paths on other jobs uh, we got histories, you know, we ask about each other's kids and stuff, even though we vaguely only remember it. But, you know, we crossed paths for the last two decades. And uh, and then there's just, if you get a good contractor, you know, the guy that's managing the whole thing, and, 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 the, and the guy on top who's just oversees all the subs, you know, if he's a good good personality... And it's just, it, it becomes a really nice thing because I have my thing and if somebody's walking by and I say, hey, could you help me with this for a sec? They would do it, you know, whoever it was, right? And, uh... Well, that sounds actually more efficient as well You don't have to well, worry about to your tools. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've been on jobs where it was, everybody's like guarded and stuff. It's like working in the city, but you're out in the rural suburbs, but it's just the vibe on the job is just... No, but every, it's it's hostile. But but when you get on those high end jobs, I mean, especially uh, with people you cross paths with before, it can be really nice because you've you've always got skill to bounce off of, or to or to uh, there's always labor around that can help you. So I get that's actually a multiplier for me because I don't need help until for that two hours I need like four big dudes to pick up this staircase, and then I'm done, right? And if they're there and we're all sort of sharing help, that's a nice thing to have. So that I don't have to have workman's comp on those guys. I don't have to, you know, everybody's kind of covered themselves. And then we just, it's, you know, and then it's like, uh, I imagine 
I try to imagine what the spirit was like at a cathedral in the middle of Europe, you know, middle medieval Europe, where he just kind of parked there for a generation and a whole community developed of these artisans and all the support systems to build this community space, right? Uh, that would absolutely. have been pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you so much, Dave and PA. Falco, do you want to take the last word? Before I uh, before I give us some copier to end things off. Thank you for that. <laughs> no, I think um, what, what Dave is pointing out is is a, a very valuable thing. I think mutual aid is a and the general concept, not just uh, what what we put the number on it, but this uh, what he's bringing forth, actually being there for each other, and this this um, willingness to work with each other is a, a good note he's pointing out i think that's about all i have for the moment cool yo um anyone else want to chime in i mean i i think honestly this is the kind of thing we need to be thinking about as we're creating new industries and new work cultures and there's a new generation of entrepreneurs that are, are doing things you know like safe software development or whatnot like there's no i've actually encountered some software startups that have had an attitude similar to that where they would be able to kind of share resources and, and uh, employees and collaborate, you know, only use what they needed at a given time and, and have that flexibility. And I think, you know, if we if we embrace that in terms of the flexibility, in terms of the um, efficiency, in terms of the dynamic stability of arrangements like that, you know, you can sell it just from a pure business standpoint. You don't even have to get into the the kind of socialist politics realm that much necessarily although of course that's like the base well i've seen uh, you've probably seen i mean it, it's approached in a capitalist way but it can some of them I, i'm sure are cooperatives just a shared industrial space if you had a fully outfitted wood shop you know and and you could get six independent guys like me who just don't get employees and just don't have partners and then just share all this industrial equipment that you know if I didn't have this stuff already cheap and fixed it up myself, I couldn't carry all this, uh, you know, means of production. It's too expensive to have it sitting still. You know, I suppose well, even here I could, I could, sort of dance around somebody else doing their own thing, as long as we coordinated it. Go ahead. Well, something that's happening in the larger cities, what's called makerspace. I don't know if you're familiar with that. For sure. Yep. Where Great you example. Go in and rent and uh, some of them have actually have office space where you can do a startup company and then use all the equipment that they have and you don't have to buy it yourself. We work. Well, <laughs> I think uh, we work is the, <laughs> maybe the less cool version. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, uh, thank you. And thank you, Bruce, for, uh, for mentioning that makerspace. Yeah. I know some people involved in that and they've, they've always uh, sung his praises. Okay. Well, why if don't I we, I have to something, Isaac, Go ahead. Uh, if I could recommend a book quickly. Please. Um, shop shop class as soul craft. Mm, what a beautiful the title. The guy's name is... Yeah. Um, I could put it up again. Shop class as soul craft. I'll put it in uh, the description too. Name. Yeah, yeah I'll put it because in the description. he's he's a PhD, I believe. I believe he's a PhD that was working in a think tank, and then he became a motorcycle restoration mechanic. And he yeah. has a lot to say on the crossover, more than I would, 
But I, I recommend the book because, I, you know, I think in the same way that the, the working man needs to enlighten himself intellectually about, about his world, you know, the, the intellectuals, uh, as, as uh, Falco said, you know, need to understand the means, you know, what, what the phys- how the physical world works, how the means of production work, right? And, uh, and he talks Absolutely. a lot about that. How, what is value? What is a bullshit job? You know, what is meaningful work? Um, yeah, it's a 10 year old book, I think. Uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft An Inquiry into the Value of Work by Matthew Crawford. Um, I'll put that in the description. Bingo. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Right on. We're going to do a 24 hour uh, oh, talk about it. Wariki, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I just wanted to um, grab on what um, uh, Dave just said. That's a really funny thing because you get all these comments coming back from intellectuals saying, you know, like if uh, capitalism finished tomorrow, um, no one would know how to do anything and we'd all die of starvation. And it's like, mate, I know how to grow fucking shit. I'm not going to die. Um, and doing all this logistic stuff, you know, it's not uh, pushing a button and it happens. It's pushing a button and then someone gets in a truck and delivers the shit. You know, it's like there's this real intellectual um, you know, lack of understanding of how shit works, and um, well, it's like an intellectual poverty. It's said. like you're you don't know about a, some basic elements about like human life if you don't know how shit works and the work people are doing around you. You know, hundred percent, hundred percent, Isaac. You know, I just think you know that's I always love listening to Dave because other than working out how he's managed to hodgepodge body pressure cooker, um, you know, there's always something something really quite fundamental about the the importance of working class understanding you know the understanding of how to use things how to convert things with the motive of your hands and your and your mind you know and um that's that's one of the crazy things it frustrates me a little bit on david's show because you get a lot of intellectuals who don't actually understand that that visceral thing that's why probably Adnan and uh, Anne are so so important because they both come from environments where they've actually done it you know they've actually you know been in environments where they've they've worked um, either from a perspective of you know doing a doing different projects or different learning vehicles but I think that's that's you know like I I think a lot of what I'm interested in is working class self-education but also on the reverse side actually giving intellectuals the opportunity to learn from people who actually work you know like physically work and and work um in the means of production and are the means of production you know i think that's that's pretty important anyway i just wanted to add that thanks yeah if 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 only because then management understands oh this takes a long time Oh, that's why you roll your eyes when I ask for it by end of day Friday, because because the physical you, you're more familiar with stuff that moves and yeah. doesn't move, and yeah. and I would add to your uh, to your list of Adnan and Ann Ricky is Falco, in the same sense yeah. Falco knows how long it takes to build coalition on the ground. Absolutely, right? am I right, Falco? It's like we could dream of like is. You know, like, oh, this great, this great unified whole of socialist oneness. But it's like, 
that takes a long time. It's a lot of work, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. And um, no, a bit because I want I wanted to respond also to uh, what Hariki was saying there, and I think this 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 disconnect which you were describing now as well, like like where where you have a complete cutoff to management and their understanding of what is happening. This is something that I see in, in, in my workplace quite readily because there's no uh, real connection. We have a lot of like uh, professional management. They came into a position of management because they actually studied for it, but they have never actually been on the floor. They never actually had to do the work. And uh, this is something that I know um, here, our local uh, Marxist uh, communist party they used to do i don't know if they still do this but the more intellectual people that would come into the party and would want to be politically active they would actually and this is a good thing i would argue they would be obligated to go and work a few years in a factory as a a shop clerk or or whatever in in a in a store and and be a be a a, a rack filler or whatever um, but they would have to have that experience because without that fundamental understanding, there is no real, there's no common ground that can be found between the two parties. And not only is a managerial position arguably for me something that should be abolished because they don't really have any use, but when you have a position which we are in now, where uh, we have a managerial class which has zero percent uh knowledge of what is actually going on 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 the on the factory floor like what is really needed and what what the needs of their workers are that's not even coming into play then then you're set up for disaster and for a very inefficient way of working actually as well because that's a a point Isaac pointed out uh, earlier, and I think the efficiency that can be achieved under um, more socialized economic structure is immense, but it's because the focus is different. The focus is more on a collective need instead of individual capital accumulation, which is per definition capitalism. Absolutely, and you know, uh a new system that, that is created that's more actually responsive, again, should be more uh, efficient, more stable in the long term, uh, more adaptable, and uh, and not as susceptible to kind of a boom-bust cycle, I think, ultimately. That's my hope. Um, okay, does anyone else want to chime in before uh, before we wrap up this, uh, this surreptitious night rule? I think we're going to have to brand this episode uh, Night Rule of the Round Table. Thank you so much, uh, Dave and PA and Falco, Bruce and uh, Rariki. Really appreciate it. Much love to you all. Uh, well, we'll end with uh, a poem from uh, the 15th century Indian poet Kabir. Friend, hope for the guest while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? 
The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten. That is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. Kabir says this, when the guest is being searched for, it is the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Look at me and you will see a slave of that intensity. Adnan, is this, is this a, a structured section? I've just dropped in a few minutes ago. Is this a freaky free-for-all? Can I just uh, uh, give my thoughts? Now that, now that you're here, what else could it be? I guess that's true. Go for also, it. I will say this this could be potentially part three of uh, Night Rule of the Round Table, yeah. where I've uh, had these uh, conversations uh, spontaneously and surreptitiously on the David Feldman verse. Dave and P.A. and Felka will be familiar. They took part in part two, but... Actually, my, my comment has something to do with what um, something Dave and P.A. said yesterday, which was it's kind of talking about his own life is like mostly working for himself as an independent type uh, subcontractor and contractor and the, the nature of like, ne- you know, having never worked in an office or never experienced. I think uh, Dave was correct. And you said you were unfamiliar with uh, with the alienation that we were we were describing in the workplace generally. Yeah, if. Um... Uh, an interesting plug for another podcast, <clears throat> um, uh, Dr. Fraud's other podcast, it's, it's Not Just In Your Head. Her partner did a, a, a guided meditation, a Marxist guided meditation, where he's, he was having you focus on your scalp and then think about shampoo and think about everything that went into the shampoo that you use every day, particularly, particularly someone with a lovely mane like Thomas, right? And, and go through all of the suffering, you know, examine all of the suffering, all of the all of the damage, the environmental damage that's created by that, you know, as a way to expand yourself out in this way. But so 
And he talked about people who made chemicals that they didn't even know what they were used for, and they ended up on their head. That kind of thing. Um, sure. I, I, being a retail woodworker, I've given people their bling directly, personally, and, and, and shared in their satisfaction. That's like my bang moment, all the suffering that it might entail, <laughs> you know. Or, you know, not enough money or whatever. When when somebody who has taste really connects with something you made and you know it's gonna be there as long as that big house they just built is gonna be there. So it's especially when you see as well as a renovation and repair carpenter, being able to see stuff that's and fix stuff that's hundred and twenty years old or something. A staircase, you know. Um, yeah. it's a connection in generations and, and knowing that that's somebody's going to take my thing apart and hopefully admire it. You it's know, a groundedness in material reality. It's grounded in material yeah, reality I, and an object. I don't know easy. another way to work. The only other work I've done besides carpentry woodworking is a dishwasher at a uh, mafia-run country club. And, uh, <laughs> um, I'll confess now all I did there was steal a case of beer with my friends. So I'm sure much, much Sorry. more nefarious things were done. Um but it had me thinking about how, like, really, like, other than, you know, obviously coordinating and contracting for the for purposes of an individual job or gig, like, you've never really been in, like, a higher fire type position, you know? Like, it's not it's not as though someone's really, like, hired and fired you from your career. You're going on, you're doing your work, you're doing your work every day. And it's not as though you're waiting for an email for someone to say, oh, you know, you've been hired to do your dream job or, or you're getting pulled aside by a boss saying, oh, you know, you've been fired from your career or whatever, you're going to be unemployed now. And I just, you know, yeah. again, I'm very simple-minded, so I constantly come back to animal metaphors, you know? Like, uh, like squirrels aren't hiring and firing fucking squirrels and telling them, you know what, dude? You're not allowed to go and get those nuts that you need for hibernation. It's like hiring and firing as a concept is not something that exists in the animal kingdom. And, like, what if we could try and imagine a future where we didn't really rely on a system? Like, I mean, really the majority of people who exist in the workforce are existing... In a, in a higher fire environment. And I think one thing we need to look at is what does it really do to a human being to exist in a world where they can be hired and they can be fired and that's the interface with, that they interact with the, econ the economy under which. Because that may benefit, you know, that may have certain efficiencies in terms of plugging people into the exact right spot in the workforce for a capitalist enterprise. But in the long term, we might actually be harming ourselves and building less value over over the long haul by kind of uh, like castrating or like lobotomizing human beings and their ability to do meaningful and productive work uh, and make an impact on the world. And it may not necessarily need to fit within some kind of uh, rigid structure. Very disciplinary apparatus, you could say, in a Foucauldian sense, right, Thomas? Like, do you have anything you want to, uh, does, does, does that give you any thoughts? Yeah, probably not the ones you're looking for, though. Um, because where I get stuck is, um, even if you're an individual craftsman, like, you're still a capital. And if you're, if you're a co-op, there's no bosses. It's, you know, the workers run the place. You, you're a co-op. Your boss uh, is not, you know, some schmuck. Um, your, your boss is is capital generally um because if you can't buy your raw materials if you can't get your wood 
um, you maybe you own some land and you harvest your own trees or whatever, but but like you know you have to buy your tools, you have to buy um, your wood and so on, um, and and you have to be able to sell them to keep doing that. Um, so at that point you you do have a boss, but it's an abstract boss, and it's probably a, a I mean a, it's an envy a, a enviable lifestyle. <laughs> um, that comes from great skill. And by the way, I was wondering if that apparatus, are you bending wood? Is that what the steam thing was? Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and similarly co-ops. And so this is why I don't like Richard Wolf. I mean, all that much. Uh, I mean, he's a, I mean, he's a nice guy. He does, uh, some of the stuff, he says interesting things a lot, but this whole emphasis on, well, there'll be worker co-ops and somehow that will lead to liberation doesn't make sense to me and unless it's understood by people going into this that they're taking their own workplaces in order to start breaking rules about money like oh okay we're going to produce and ship stuff to these guys regardless of whether they can pay and our suppliers are going to need to ship us stuff regardless of whether we can pay and we're going to have to find a different reason for why i ship to that person and why that person ships to me and that reason I tend to think we're in a great position in the 21st century because we got email, we got phones, we got Zoom. You know, there's lots of existing human relations to build on uh, to maintain those networks of the flow of stuff, but to begin to use our brains and say, what problems do we have? We have the pandemic, we have the climate problem, we have, you know, hunger problems, we have all the, you know, health problems in some communities much more than others, and so on. And so if we start doing things outside <clears throat> using our existing institutions, but basically, you know, we're going to break the, the accounting system. Um, we're going to do things on voluntary basis. Uh, we have to be frugal and careful, uh, but we can begin to, to solve problems um, is, is where I think the big social hope is for the greater society right now. Hmm. Hope that was responsive. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Uh, no, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, you need to be, I mean, obviously you don't want to be idealistic and, and assume somehow that it, but the worker control of an enterprise um, is going to somehow be uh, an antidote to any kind of like problem or like context or, you know, things like the course of laws of competition and whatnot um, and your existence in a marketplace. I mean, I just wonder if somehow like... Um, and maybe I am maybe I am literally an idealist in the sense that I, I think ideas can drive uh, change. Uh, and I, I wonder, like, you know, a worker who's hired and fired, is there a way we can start to disintegrate and and break down and disentangle that as a concept that's just taken as, as a normative fact? You know, I mean, like, I, I know I know it's 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 like we're in the 15th century and we're trying to imagine the end of monarchy monarchism. But, you know, they, they they did imagine it at some point. It took hundreds of years and whatnot from, you know, I'm sure Adnan can, is much more familiar with the history of, of, you know, the long dissolution of, like, feudal power. But it just seems to me there's there's an intuitive, there's an intuitive element to uh, human experience that I think is fairly universal, maybe not completely universal, but fairly universal, that is lost in the translation of people being put into the workforce as workers who are hired and fired and whose output can be honestly like wildly derailed and interrupted and hampered by this 
you know, this on off switch of, of being in the workforce and out of the workforce and having to uh, engage in the rat race of trying to just, you know, customize one's skills towards a certain type of job or uh, whatnot. I mean, with the, with like the unemployment levels we're seeing with automation potentially in the future being really disruptive in certain um, industries, I mean, that remains to be seen to what extent. Um, is there a way for people to just be and and engage in, in something that we, we would characterize as work now, but would be considered, like maybe even the whole concept of work itself needs to be problematized and expanded a little bit, you know? Like meaningful work, work that f- fully engages someone in their individual interests and passions and spirit, and they're, they're engaged in a flow, and it's... Uh, it's not uh, obviously for the pur- like um, for the purposes of a salary or a wage. I mean, I say this as someone who's waiting to get an email saying, "Isaac, you've been here's your offer for this job." <laughs> so it's very much on my mind at this moment. Dave, you had your hand up there. Yeah, thanks. <clears throat> well, you know, we're all something I was thinking about lately is that um, no matter what the economic system, everybody's subject to it when it when it becomes the more success it has the more people are subject to it meaning not everybody's on board but they got to live with it just like i do i'm not on board with the economic system way it is and but i play it as best i can which is not great but so much of it i think what, what i'm thinking about what isaac says is the hire and fire and that track record that data set that for a certain part of the economy is everything, right? Is that what you mean, Isaac? Like I, I'm not, I'm outside of a hire and fire sure. system. Yeah. Your resume, I've been an you know, employee. Yeah. I'm in and out. My resume is, Oh, that's Dave. He worked for that other guy. Yeah. Your, your, your like, resume is I actually moved, a more, a more accurate representation of like a social relationship and reality than a it's resume. A photo a resu- but my but a a re- my album. resume could be padded. I mean, people right. don't really know what like how accurate your resume is. People don't really check your references that much. Even I find, yeah, like they're and they end up kind of hiring you based on the same gut sense. Like in terms of me looking for a job at a software company, in the end, they're going to end up hiring me because they have a sense of who I am and they like me. The same way they're probably going to hire you to build a house because they kind of. Oh, they're getting a good sense from you, and they think you're a good guy, and they're just going to like assume, well, take a chance, and then you know they can they can change things if it doesn't work out. Let me let me let me lay this on you though. Uh, maybe two three years ago, a friend of mine was the head of housekeeping at a psychiatric hospital right near here, twenty minutes away in in New York, and they needed janitorial janitorial staff. And he said it was like, you know, seven hours starting at like five in the morning. You'll be home by lunch and you'll have medical benefits and dental and optical and all this shit for your family. Right. And if you stick it out for 10 years, you got you got benefits for that that are there after your retirement uh, to an extent. Anyway, so I applied. Right. I said, well, maybe I can swing. I can do the dual thing. No problem. And um, they wouldn't even look at it. I have no employment record. It's all just been these personal relationships, like you say. So it's like, it, it, I, I, you know, I wasn't fit to be a janitor, mm. you know, but I could, I could, I could build the interior of a bank. Right. Yeah. Or a church. <laughs> 
So yeah. do you have a like? Uh, uh, could you have like a contract show this, some form of a resume or to you know stubs from being paid or something? I don't know checks or whatever. Would that even work? Dave? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have an LLC and and uh, and I have, like I said, a, a, an album of and an Instagram of everything I make. So it's obvious there's a track record of who I am. Yeah. But as an empl- but there's no employment record. Yeah. Like they, right. I, yeah, I they haven't just, been yeah. rung through this system that filters out and say, okay, a guy with that, you know, we can look at that and say, okay, he's, we can, we can probably, he's, he made it through that sort of system. He could probably make it in this system. And I'm not even sure I would have made it in that system. I've never worked in a huge institution like that. I, I have a similar kind of a career for the most part, but I do have, you know, jobs that involve payroll companies and you know production companies so i do have records of it but my mm. you know i'm freelance basically though and it's sure. word of mouth that's how i get most of my jobs well right? i, f- I feel like these are all these day. are all sides of the same coin about about like how people kind of choose to work together but adnan um you you i'll give you the mic now oh just sorry no i don't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation but i just wanted to uh, say that uh, the uh, I thought your your suggestions were very interesting there, uh, Isaac, about getting out of the higher fire mode. And then you were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the natural world, uh, animals, uh, how they engage. And, of course, I did have to note that they're not always very solidaristic. And you know, <laughs> there are features of life in the natural world that we might not want to reproduce in social relations. Uh, but... The Very other much so, point the that I Thank wanted you. to make, and um, Thomas is um, uh, away from his camera, but maybe uh, I'll go ahead anyway. We can kind of cycle back to it. Is that, um, oh, uh, he was making a critique of the worker collective sort of idea as a panacea for breaking these capitalist relations. And I just wanted to remind people that there is a reason why Marx starts with the commodity at the start of his analysis, which doesn't seem like maybe that would be the most obvious place to really start. I mean, he really emphasizes and builds his argument around the idea of commodity being a commodity being something that's produced for sale in the market uh, so that then he can talk about labor as a commodity and so on. Um, But uh, he's very... um, he has in on page 161 um a footnote um you know it's in the section on commodity commodity and money and he really attacks the socialism of proudhon and others um who who tried you know they had this idea of creating a kind of utopian community that was where everybody uh, owns, uh, you know, we're an egalitarian kind of workers, collective and cooperative society where they could organize the means of production, uh, you know, among themselves, no bosses, etc., and produce, you know, commodities. Um, but his, Marx's whole point was, well, but they're still part of the commodity form and it's not going to change all that much ultimately because they're still producing commodities for the market right it's just that they're doing how they produce commodities for the market 
So maybe that was kind of what Thomas, you were getting at in some ways, or was was your point a little bit different about the limitations of the worker collective approach? Because I was kind of interested to hear a little bit more also about, it made me think initially about some sense of this, a mutual aid society, like not as in, you know, a small organization, an NGO, but a mutual aid as a society, that the way the society runs is in forms of mutual aid, because we have the means of communication, we can circulate things, we can, you know, uh, apply labor in various ways when we have skills to people who need it. If, um, you know, other needs were met, there were way there could be ways that we could, um, you know, rather radically still have, um, you know, a form of life, uh, you know, that was not, you know, really roped into the capitalist social relations. Anyway, that's kind of what I was thinking. I just, I just wanted to pursue the conversation further and see what you were getting at and, and what you thought about that issue. Uh, I, I was really grateful when you took it back to uh, the logical structure of capital, because I, I, I think, man, you know that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to say back uh, some of that in, in slightly different words. Um, we begin with the commodity and we're analyzing societies in which the prevailing, the predominant, the overwhelming form that wealth that takes is that of the commodity. And the commodity has the dual nature, which you're talking about. It has, it has this exchange value. It has this market purpose. Um, uh, and, and it also has its, its utility. And that split we use throughout this, that Twitter thread I, I, I wrote, um, as far as teaching newbies, um, a deficit of that thread is that it does not explicitly try to mark that distinction. It kind of hints at it once or twice, um, but, but, you know, uh, uh, very important. But, but the logical structure is like, well, if, if commodities are fundamental to your society and they have in fact this dualistic nature, okay, um, it, it follows that you have, um, first of all, value uh, you have this this concept, this 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 notion of abstract value of some sort, so that com commodities of wildly different uses are somehow quantitatively comparable, which is kind of a mystery, and it seems sort of absurd that this is inherent in any society that has a a, a sort of dualistic commodity that has both exchange value and use value, um, and and it also means you're going to have systems of property because what else are buyers and sellers uh, besides two property owners making an exchange. Um, once you have those things, um, it, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to have uh, both capitals who consolidate the means of production um, and wage slavery. That is people whose sole position, the sole possession uh, is their ability to do work. That's the only thing they can sell. It itself becomes a commodity um uh and and you wind up with wage slavery and property and and the whole um the whole mess and and really importantly once you have property of this sort you have competition and you have competition both among the owners of the means of production each with each other and you have competition among the workers each with each other uh because the amount of available wage employment is limited 
uh, the amount of productive capital is limited. There's a fight for it. And the whole thing continues. And again, uh, this happens whether um, the workers must be their own boss uh, or whether, you know, Mr. Pennybags is twirling his mustache, uh, lording over them. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think you're exactly right. And so what's the alternative? Um, uh, the alternative is production in free association, which is volunteerism, which is uh, a, a non-capitalist anarchism. Um, and here in the 21st century, we face extremely grave crises. The pandemic is one for sure. Okay, keeping people alive through this, if, like if we could socially isolate enough to 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 really quell, sort of quell the you know the, the, this would require um, really extraordinary measures outside of any normal economy. Um, we should of course do it, but even bigger than that is the ecological crisis, the climate crisis that we now face. Um, we, over the next ten years, either we retain an economy uh, and lose sort of a habitable planet, or we retain a habitable planet and the economy is going to collapse. Um, so we have these social problems that will be totalizing, global, ubiquitous. So this is exactly the right moment in history when there's really no choice uh, other than to develop um, a, 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 a sort of solidarity, a, a sort of a, among a, a sort of international commitment among the people who actually do work to solve the very real, imminent, practical problems of how to produce and distribute food, clothing, how to have people sheltered, how to provide medical care, um, all of these necessary things. Uh, now that it is not only obvious, but manifest that the capitalist mode of production is a miserable basis on which to go forward, that it, it inhibits rather than empowers our ability to solve these problems. And so, uh, you know, it's going to take individual courage and, and small group courage in workplaces, in various situations, each of whom is improvising against the local conditions and resistances that they meet to begin to break rules and cooperate with the larger society that is actually trying to deal with this. Okay, and that's why I give the example of like, what does it take if you if if you if you and your coworkers are, are making some necessary, what does it take for you to put something on the loading dock, and make sure it goes with the right people to get to where it's needed, um, regardless of what the chief financial officer is screaming, regardless of the bank coming demanding its payment. We have these problems like in the distribution of goods if we start ending fossil fuel burning fast enough, okay? Um, uh, but we also have these, also have these problems now sort of with respect to things like how do we provide education for kids? Um, how do we provide medical care and so on? It, it, it really is gonna take people reacting to the situation as if it's a disaster area, um, as if everything has sort of now ended uh, and we're in a, a field of chaos, and the only way that people are going to survive is if the good and alert people of, of the group are large enough in mass and good enough at connecting with one another and kind of keeping things calm and starting to work on solving these problems.
that's our moment as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah well, I, 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 that's a very interesting point. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm my concern is, I think, with you in that this uh, experience of crisis that we are rapidly accelerating towards, um, it could it could go in the direction of providing, uh, you know, solutions and structures for decision making that are purely authoritarian. We've got a crisis, we're going to have to give up, uh, you know, all of our autonomy and all of our liberty. And, you know, in order to get through this, uh, you know, we're going to have to do X, Y, Z. And yes, it is going to be an emergency. But one worry, worrisome aspect is, um, and frankly, I think corporations and so on are adapting pretty quickly to some of these um, realities by themselves starting to corporatize these solutions and getting ahead of of things um, but you know even if they're not the ones who are the first drivers of it you know you can have democratic approaches to these solutions um you know or you can have very authoritarian ones and of course there are the eco-fascists who are already thinking of very dramatic, you know, uh, sorts of solutions uh, for scarce resources, ecological crisis, and so on. Um, so I'm very interested in what you were suggesting and thinking. I think it's something that's very important for us to consider. What are the ways we could achieve these distributive and productive ends in affiliation, in democratic ways uh, to solve these problems? Uh, I mean, I I some of the alternatives could be very, very, you know, disastrous, you know, for for human society on some level. Anyway, that's just my for endorsement. Sure. That's a big issue we should really think about. I mean, I would advocate for like a pretty like staunchly like social democratic program of like, like, let's say we take the necessities of life, you know, food, shelter, education, health care vaccines and and we we say okay we're obviously these have existed within a capitalist system and been treated as commodities at various points but we're we're going to invent a new concept we're going to call it the pseudo commodity and it's the elements that we we deem uh, are pertinent enough to the social good and the public good that we're we're going to allow them to have a pseudo commodity uh type like uh existence vis-a-vis -vis plugging into the system at large but we're also going to be subsidizing it we're also going to be regulating it heavily we're also going to be trying to implement certain like for example like we have you know there's capitalist competition which can be pretty coercive but what about like creative competition as a concept like what if everyone who was studying vaccines were associating with each other based on um who they want people choosing who they wanted to work with everyone had semi egalitarian access to things like lab space and resources and it was organized in almost like a like almost an anarchist way with the purpose of really just trying to have people innovate as quickly as they possibly could because i mean does does it make sense to have Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer and AstraZeneca all working towards beating each other to get the grand prize of the most the the, the vaccine they can make the most money off of I mean, have have we not seen that the uh, global pharmaceutical development apparatus is not, is really like insufficient to our needs moving forward? You know, like and that and that that state intervention um, made has made a, a tremendous difference in terms of developing a fucking coronavirus vaccine 
that's never been like we've never developed a vaccine in the history of the human race for coronavirus before. Um, I mean, how much how much innovation are we losing by duplicating efforts? Um, I that, just, Isaac, I, I think um, if we get back to where Thomas has uh, based this this particular conversation around, he comes back down to the the conceptual idea of the commodity form as the driving force for capitalism. So the key thing is, how do you, um, uh, if you if you wish to have an anarchist or a Marxist or a socialist uh, outcome for the society, how do you actually create a society which um, does away with that commodity form, which takes everything away from that competitive mindset and shifts it to a cooperative mindset. Um, and it also, um, you know, th there's pluses and minuses for worker councils, uh, worker cooperatives and that type of thing. But it's it's the shape and form of, as Anand said, whether you're looking at it as a, um, as a uh, democratic, uh, broadly um, structured system, or if you're looking at it as an autocratic, uh, whether that's a state or, a, you know, individual capitalist driven system. So I think some of the really important things uh, from Thomas's excellent sort of exposition are, are really about us as a as a group looking at um, that conversation and, and then converting that into uh, the society that you want to have and um, the society you want to participate in. The key thing is that profit is capital, is surplus value, and it's fundamentally extracted from you and I uh, as um, the the profit is the flesh you know it's it's taken from that um, and it's not about doing a broad uh, based sort of um, some type of crazy utopianism um, philistine utopia uh, it's not that it's about creating something once once the forms of production have been created they exist and it's a thought process once it exists it's a matter of uh, shifting that surplus value and putting it in the, into a place which is of value to the society and how that society chooses to make that happen. You know, the, the reality is that the ecological issue of our civilization is not something that's been with us for two, three hundred thousand, uh, hundred thousand years or three million years since our species have, have existed. It's something that's existed for three or four hundred years under this uh, form of mode of production. So the mode of the production is driving the devastation of the ecology and the fact that be a CEO, you need to be a psychopath, is part of that social condition. So this is where the emphasis should be, and it should be actually, as Thomas says, how do we create that um, existence? And it's not a utopia, it's it's just a real world you know how do we create a real world that delivers what we would like it to deliver and we do so inside the constraints not of being able to produce however much we want but what is it that we want and how can we do that inside the the um, society and the ecology that we want to have you know i i think that's probably where where thomas has really given a very good um push back to you know some of the classical marxism and says well you actually have to come up with an answer you know mm. marx didn't try to 
Mark's tried to give you a, a sort of a, a working ground to work from. But now that you've got that, and I think for most of us in the room that have been doing this for the last 25 weeks, you actually do have a, a pretty strong basis to do that from. Not as good as it will be in 25 weeks, but this is the importance of reading and discussing, is that we actually get to a point where we can make decisions not only for ourselves, but for ourselves as a collective and take that message into our communities and our society and make a society that we want. So anyway, that's very, that's very well said. Very well said. Thank you, Rariki. Um, I will I will end this surreptitious uh, Night Rule episode with a reading from Kabir. But if anyone wants to uh, give a final thought um, before they let the Lunius Bolshevik and Petrograd uh, do his thing and then run away. I'm, I'm speaking up now so you can <laughs> you can cut it off at the end if you want to. <laughs> this is Joe Britton. Sure. And I just need to let you know and the whole, the whole group understand how um, how you're, uh, what you're talking about resonates with me. I don't speak up a lot, but it's extremely important. important. I'm at a juncture where I could um, um, offer what I have, my means of production, my capital. Um, it's a huge raw inventory part of jewelry parts and I have a factory that I'm renting, but I'm not making any money. And one solution could be to invite a collective and somehow, but in the end, I have to say, it's a business relationship, no matter, because it's the, we uh, live, as mentioned before, in, in a capitalist uh, environment. and. Even though we could operate as a collective, would still be um, because of our uh, uh, just uh, the way we've been infected with this idea, for one thing, and um, uh, you know, adhering to the rules of capitalism is just so hard to shake. Is, is kind of what I'm getting at. For sure. I mean, it's so, it's incredibly yeah. hard to step out of the river of history. I mean, we can't. But I mean, yeah. you know, I think and, and, yeah. and, and you have to imagine a different thought. future. Just one more thought is that it's like um, uh, a collective has to be good, a good collective. You know, there has to be aligned um, understanding. I just want to I want to let you know that uh, I'm one of your favorite uh I'm a big uh, supporter of your show, and I oh. love it when you speak up. So. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Joe. I was not <laughs> able to resist speaking up, even though I'm not the best at it. I just had to because I was so drawn in, and it's oh. so important to me. I would be remiss if I didn't. So Glad you did, brother. I'm a sign-off. Yeah, thanks, Joe. All I was going to say was we, have, we can start up a Zoom meeting anytime you want one. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna have to start doing you, that. Maybe, just, maybe it can be a it can be a weekend thing once a month because I, I really I yeah, think just, I, I think the roundtable discussion. Invitation. Yeah, because I really like this just style. Send of out invitation discussion. if you want random people. For sure. Yeah. But obviously, if you were to publish this, all of us would equally share the surplus value, right? <laughs> Special thank you to everyone who participated in these roundtable discussions. Um, I know I'm gonna forget people, but uh, Adnan, Andy, Thomas. 
Marianne, um, Dan, Joe, um, everyone else, Falco, Dave, and PA. Um, just great talking to you guys always, and uh, and thank you so much. And hopefully we can do it again soon, and uh, and I'll be a little bit more organized <laughs> next time. Um, so. Without any further ado, we're going to end again with a poem from the 15th century poet Kabir. And uh, this has been Night Rule of the Round Table. Thank you, everyone. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road, and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank, or resting? There is no river at all, and no boat, and no boatman. There is no tow rope either, and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford. And there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are.